Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Fifteen. Now, having seen our sight, said Robert, as they left the great mass of Muirwell behind them, come and see our scandal. Both run by the same proprietor, if you please. There is a hamlet down there in the hollow, and he pointed to a grey speck in the distance which deserves a royal commission all to itself, which is a disgrace, and his tone warmed, to any country, any owner, any agent. It is owned by Mr. Wendover, and I see the pleasing prospect straight before me of beginning my acquaintance with him by a fight over it. You will admit that it is a little hard on a man who wants to live on good terms with the possessor of the Muirwell Library to have to open relations with him by a fierce attack on his drains and his pigsties. He turned to his companion with a half-rueful spark of laughter in his grey eyes. Langham hardly caught what he said. He was far away in meditations of his own. "'An attack?' he repeated vaguely. "'Why an attack?' Robert plunged again into the great topic of which his quick mind was evidently full. Langham tried to listen, but was conscious that his friend's social enthusiasms bored him a great deal and, side by side with the consciousness, there slid in a little stinging reflection that four years ago no talk of Ellesmere's could have bored him. "'What's the matter with this particular place?' he asked languidly, at last, raising his eyes towards the group of houses now beginning to emerge from the distance. An angry red mounted in Robert's cheek. "'What isn't the matter with it? The houses which were built on a swamp originally are falling into ruin. The roofs, the drains, the accommodation per head—' are all about equally scandalous. The place is harried with illness. Since I came there has been both fever and diphtheria there. They are all crippled with rheumatism, but that they think nothing of. The English labourer takes rheumatisms quite in the day's bargain. And as to vice, the vice that comes of mere endless persecuting opportunity, I can tell you one's ideas of personal responsibility get a good deal shaken up by a place like this. And I can do nothing." I brought over Henslow to see the place, and he behaved like a brute. He scoffed at all my complaints, said that no landlord would be such a fool as to build fresh cottages on such a site, that the old ones must just be allowed to go to ruin, that people might live in them if they chose, or turn out of them if they chose. Nobody forced them to do either. It was their own lookout. That was true, said Langham, wasn't it? Robert turned upon him fiercely. Ah, oh, you think it's so easy for those poor creatures to leave their homes, their working places. Some of them have been there thirty years. They are close to the two or three farms that employ them, close to the osier beds which give them extra earnings in the spring. If they were turned out, there is nothing nearer than Muirwell, and not a single cottage to be found there. I don't say it is a landlord's duty to provide more cottages that are wanted, but if the labourer is wanted, the labourer should be decently housed. He's worthy of his hire, and woe to the man who neglects or ill-treats him. Langham could not help smiling, partly at the vehemence of the speech, partly at the lack of adjustment between his friend's mood and his own. He braced himself to take the matter more seriously, but meanwhile Robert had caught the smile, and his angry eyes melted at once into laughter. "'There I am, ranting as usual,' he said penitently. "'Took you for Henslow, I suppose. Ah, oh, well, never mind.' I hear the provost has another book on the stocks. So they diverged into other things, talking politics and new books, public men and what not, till at the end of a long and gradual descent through wooded ground, some two miles to the northwest of the park, 
They emerged from the trees beneath which they had been walking, and found themselves on a bridge, a grey sluggish stream flowing beneath them, and the hamlet they sought rising among the river flats on the farther side. There, said Robert, stopping, we are at our journey's end. Now then, what sort of a place of human habitation do you call that? The bridge, whereon they stood, crossed the main channel of the river, which just at that point, however, parted into several branches, and came meandering slowly down through a little bottom or valley, filled with osier beds, long since robbed of that year's growth of shoots. On the other side of the river, on ground all but level with the osier beds, which interposed between them and the stream, rose a miserable group of houses, huddled together as though their bulging walls and rotten roofs could only maintain themselves at all by the help and support which each wretched hovel gave to its neighbour. The mud walls were stained with yellow patches of lichen, the palings round the little gardens were broken and ruinous. Close beside them all was a sort of open drain or watercourse, stagnant and noisome, which dribbled into the river a little above the bridge. Behind them rose a high gravel-bank edged by firs, and a line of oak-trees against the sky. The houses stood in the shadow of the bank looking north, and on this grey, lowering day the dreariness, the gloom, the squalor of the place were indescribable. "'Well, that is a godforsaken hole,' said Langham, studying it, his interest roused at last, rather perhaps by the Royster-like melancholy and picturesqueness of the scene than by its human suggestiveness. "'I could hardly have imagined such a place existed in southern England. It's more like a bit of Ireland. "'If it were Ireland, it might be to somebody's interest to ferret it out,' said Robert, bitterly. "'But these poor folks are out of the world. They may be brutalised with impunity.' Oh, such a case as I had here last autumn, a young girl of sixteen or seventeen who would have been healthy and happy anywhere else, stricken by the damp and the poison of the place, dying in six weeks, of complications due to nothing in the world but preventable cruelty and neglect. It was a sight that burnt into my mind, once and for all, what is meant by a landlord's responsibility. I tried, of course, to move her, but neither she nor her parents, elderly folk, had energy enough for a change. They only prayed to be let alone. I came over the last evening of her life to give her the communion. "'Ah, sir,' said the mother to me, not bitterly, "'that is the strange thing, they have so little bitterness. "'If Mr. Enslow would just have mended that bitter roof of ours last winter, "'Bessie needn't have laid in the wet so many nights as she did, "'and she coughing fit to break your heart, for all the things you could have put over her.' Robert paused, his strong young face so vehemently angry a few minutes before, tremulous with feeling. "'Ah, well!' he said at last, with a long breath, moving away from the parapet of the bridge on which he had been leaning. "'Better be oppressed than oppressor any day. Now then, I must deliver my stores. There's a child here. Catherine and I have been doing our best to pull through typhoid.' They crossed the bridge and turned down the track leading to the hamlet. Some planks carried them across the ditch, the main sewer of the community, as Robert pointed out, and they made their way through the filth surrounding one of the nearest cottages. A feeble, elderly man, whose shaking limbs and sallow, bloodless skin made him look much older than he actually was, opened the door and invited them to come in. Robert passed on into an inner room, conducted thither by a woman who had been sitting working over the fire. Langham stood irresolute, but the old man's quavering, "'Can't you take a chair, sir? You've come a long way,' decided him, and he stepped in. Inside the hovel was miserable indeed. 
It belonged to that old and evil type which the efforts of the last twenty years have done so much all over England to sweep away. Four mud walls, enclosing an oblong space about eight yards long, divided into two unequal portions by a lath and plaster partition, with no upper storey, a thatched roof, now entirely out of repair, and letting in the rain in several places, and a paved floor little better than the earth itself, so large and cavernous were the gaps between the stones. The dismal place had no small adornings, none of those little superfluities which, however ugly and trivial, are still so precious in the dwellings of the poor, as showing the existence of some instinct or passion which is not the creation of the sheerest physical need. And Langham, as he sat down, caught the sickening marsh smell which the Oxford man, accustomed to the odours of damp meadows in times of ebbing flood and festering sun, knows so well. As old Milsom began to talk to him, in his weak, tremulous voice, the visitor's attention was irresistibly held by the details about him. Fresh as he was from all the delicate sights, the harmonious colours and delightful forms of the squire's house, they made an unusually sharp impression on his fastidious senses. What does human life become, lived on reeking floors and under stifling roofs like these? What strange abnormal deteriorations, physical and spiritual, must it not inevitably undergo? Langham felt a sudden inward movement of disgust and repulsion. "'For heaven's sake, keep your superstitions!' he could have cried to the whole human race, or any other narcotic that a grinding fate has left you. What does anything matter to the mass of mankind but a little ease, a little lightening of pressure on this side or on that? Meanwhile the old man went maundering on, talking of the weather and of his sick child, and Mr. Ellesmere, with a kind of listless incoherence which hardly demanded an answer, though Langham threw in a word or two here and there. Among other things, he began to ask a question or two about Robert's predecessor, a certain Mr. Preston, who had left behind him a memory of amiable evangelical indolence. "'Did you see much of him?' he asked. "'Oh, no, no, sir,' replied the man, surprised into something like energy. I "'Never seen him more than once a year, and sometimes not that.' "'Was he liked here?' "'Well, sir, he's like this, you see. My wife, she's North Country, she is, coming from Yorkshire.' Sometimes she used to say to me, Passion he ain't much good, and passion he ain't much harm. He's no more good nor more no harm, so far as I can see, nor a chip in a basin of paddage. And that was just about it, sir, said the old man, pleased for the hundredth time with his wife's bygone flight of metaphor, and his own exact memory of it. As to the rector's tendance of his child, his tone was very cool and guarded. It do seem strange, sir, as nor he nor Dr. Grimes'll let her have anything to put a bit of flesh on her, nothing but the messy things as he brings, milk and that, and the brief jelly. Law, such a trouble. Mrs. Ellesmere, he tells my wife, strains all the stuff through a cloth, she do. I never seen anything like it, nor my wife neither. People is clever nowadays, said the speaker dubiously. Langham realised that, in this quarter of his parish at any rate, his friend's pastoral vanity, if he had any, would not find much to feed on. Nothing, to judge from this specimen at least, greatly affected an inhabitant of Mile End. Gratitude, responsiveness, implied health and energy, past or present. The only constant defence which the poor have against such physical conditions as those which prevailed at Mile End is apathy. As they came down the dilapidated steps at the cottage door, 
Robert drew in with avidity a long draught of the outer air. Ah, he said with a sort of groan, that bedroom. Nothing gives one such a sense of the toughness of human life as to see a child recovering, actually recovering, in such a pestilential den. Father, mother, grown-up son, girl of thirteen, and grandchild, all huddled in a space just fourteen feet square. Langham, and he turned passionately on his companion, what defence can be found for a man who lives in a place like Muirwell Hall, and can take money from human beings for the use of a sty like that? "'Gently, my friend. Probably the squire, being the sort of recluse he is, has never seen the place, or at any rate not for years, and knows nothing about it.' "'More shame for him.' "'True, in a sense,' said Langham, a little dryly. "'But as you may want hereafter to make excuses for your man, and end he may give you occasion, I wouldn't begin by painting him to yourself any blacker than need be.' Robert laughed, sighed, and acquiesced. "'I'm a hot-headed, impatient kind of creature at the best of times,' he confessed. "'They tell me that great things have been done for the poor round here in the last twenty years. Something has been done, certainly. But why are the old ways, the old evil neglect and apathy, so long, so terribly long, in dying? This social progress of ours we are so proud of is a clumsy, limping jade at best.' They prowled a little more about the hamlet every step almost revealing some new source of poison and disease. Of their various visits, however, Langham remembered nothing afterwards but a little scene in a miserable cottage, where they found a whole family party gathered round the midday meal. A band of puny, black, black-eyed children were standing or sitting at the table. The wife, confined to twins three weeks before, sat by the fire, deathly pale, a bad leg stretched out before her on some improvised support, one baby on her lap, and another dark-eyed bundle asleep in a cradle beside her. There was a pathetic, pinched beauty about the whole family. Even the tiny twins were comparatively shapely. All the other children had delicate, transparent skins, large eyes, and small, colourless mouths. The father, a picturesque, handsome fellow, looking as though he had gypsy blood in his veins, had opened the door to their knock. Robert, seeing the meal, would have retreated at once, in spite of the children's shy, inviting looks, but a glance past them at the mother's face checked the word of refusal and apology on his lips, and he stepped in. In after years Langham was always apt to see him in imagination as he saw him then, standing beside the bent figure of the mother, his quick, pitiful eyes taking in the pallor and exhaustion of the face and frame his hand resting instinctively on the head of a small creature that had crept up beside him, his look all attention and softness as the woman feebly told him some of the main facts of her state. The young rector at the moment might have stood for the modern man of feeling, as sensitive, as impressionable, and as free from the burden of self as his eighteenth-century prototype. On the way home Robert suddenly remarked to his companion, "'Have you heard my sister-in-law play yet, Langham?' "'What did you think of it?' "'Extraordinary,' said Langham briefly. "'The most considerable gift I ever came across in an amateur.' His olive cheek flushed a little involuntarily. Robert threw a quick observant look at him. "'The difficulty,' he exclaimed, "'is to know what to do with it.' "'Why do you make the difficulty? I gather she wants to study abroad. What is there to prevent it?' Langham turned to his companion with a touch of asperity. 
He could not stand it that Elsmere should be so much narrowed and warped by that wife of his and her prejudices. Why should that gifted creature be cribbed, cabined, and confined in this way? I grant you, said Robert, with a look of perplexity, there is not much to prevent it. And he was silent a moment, thinking on his side, very tenderly, of all the antecedents and explanations of that old-world distrust of art and the artistic life so deeply rooted in his wife, even though in practice and under his influence she had made concession after concession. "'The great solution of all,' he said presently, brightening, "'will be to get her married. I don't wonder her belongings dislike the notion of anything so pretty and so flighty going off to live by itself.' and to break up the home in Windale would be to undo everything their father did for them, to defy his most solemn last wishes. To talk of a father's wishes in a case of this kind, ten years after his death, is surely excessive, said Langham, with dry interrogation. Then, suddenly recollecting himself, I beg your pardon, Elsmere, I am interfering. Nonsense, said Robert brightly. I don't wonder it seems like a difficulty of our own making. Like so many difficulties, it depends on character, present character, bygone character. And again he fell musing on his Westmoreland experiences, and on the intensity of that Puritan type it had revealed to him. However, as I said, marriage would be the natural way out of it. An easy way, I should think, said Langham, after a pause. It won't be easy to find the right man. She's a young person with a future, is Miss Rose. She wants somebody in the stream, somebody with a strong hand who will keep her in order, and yet give her a wide range. A rich man, I think. She hasn't the ways of a poor man's wife. But at any rate, someone who would be proud of her, and yet have a full life of his own, in which she may share. "'Your views are extremely clear,' said Langham, and his smile had a touch of bitterness in it. "'If hers agree, I prophesy you won't have long to wait.' She has beauty, talent, charm, everything that rich and important men like. There was the slightest sarcastic note in the voice. Robert winced. It was borne in upon one of the least worldly of mortals that he had been talking like the veriest schemer. What vague, quick impulse had driven him on? By the time they emerged again upon the Muirwell Green, the rain had cleared altogether away, and the autumnal morning had broken into sunshine, which played mistily on the sleeping woods on the white fronts of the cottages, and the wide green where the rain-pools glistened. On the hill leading to the rectory there was the flutter of a woman's dress. As they hurried on, afraid of being late for luncheon, they saw that it was Rose in front of them. Langham stared at the slender figure suddenly defined itself against the road. A tumult within, half rage, half feeling, showed itself only in an added rigidity of the finely cut features. Rose turned directly she heard the steps and voices, and over the dreaminess of her face there flashed a sudden brightness. "'You have been a long time,' she exclaimed, saying the first thing that came into her head, joyously, rationally, like the child she in reality was. "'How many halt and maimed has Robert taken you to see, Mr. Langham?' "'We went to Meormel first. The library was well worth seeing. Since then we have been a parish round, distributing stores.' Rose's look changed in an instant. The words were spoken by the Langham of her earliest acquaintance. The man who that morning had asked her to play to him had gone, vanished away. "'How exhilarating!' she said scornfully. "'Don't you wonder how anyone can ever tear themselves away from the country?' "'Rose, don't be abusive,' said Robert, opening his eyes at her tone. Then, passing his arm through hers, 
he looked banteringly down upon her. "'For the first time since you left the metropolis you have walked yourself into a colour. It's becoming, and it's mule. So be civil.' "'Oh, nobody denies you a high place in milkmaids,' she said, with her head in the air, and they went off into a minute sparring. Meanwhile Langham, on the other side of the road, walked up slowly, his eyes on the ground. Once, when Rose's eyes caught him, a shock ran through her. There was already a look of slovenly age about his stooping bookworm's gait. Her companion of the night before, handsome, animated, human, where was he? The girl's heart felt a singular contraction. Then she turned and rent herself, and Robert found her more mocking and sprightly than ever. At the rectory gate Robert ran on to overtake a farmer on the road. Rose stooped to open the latch. Langham mechanically made a quick movement forward to anticipate her. Their fingers touched. She drew hers hastily away and passed in, an erect and dignified figure in her curving garden hat. Langham went straight up to his room, shut the door, and stood before the open window, deaf and blind to everything save an inward storm of sensation. "'Fool! Idiot!' he said to himself at last, with fierce, stifled emphasis, while a kind of dumb fury with himself and circumstance swept through him. That he, the poor and solitary student whose only sources of self-respect lay in the deliberate limitations, the reasoned and reasonable renunciations he had imposed upon his life, should have needed the reminder of his old pupil not to fall in love with his brilliant, ambitious sister, his irritable self-consciousness enormously magnified Ellesmere's motive and Ellesmere's words. That golden vagueness and softness of temper which had possessed him since his last sight of her gave place to one of bitter tension. With sardonic scorn he pointed out to himself that his imagination was still held by, his nerves were still thrilling under, the mental image of a girl looking up to him as no woman had ever looked, a girl, white-armed, white-necked, with softened eyes of appeal and confidence. He bade himself mark that during the whole of his morning walk with Robert down to its last stage his mind had been really absorbed in some preposterous dream he was now too self-contemptuous to analyse. Pretty well for a philosopher in four days. What a ridiculous business is life! What a contemptible creature is man! How incapable of dignity, of consistency! At luncheon he talked rather more than usual, especially on literary matters with Robert. Rose, too, was fully occupied in giving Catherine a sarcastic account of a singing lesson she had been administering in the school that morning. Catherine winced sometimes at the tone of it. That afternoon Robert, in high spirits, his rod over his shoulder, his basket at his back, carried off his guest for a lounging afternoon along the river. Ellesmere enjoyed these fishing expeditions like a boy. They were his holidays, relished all the more because he kept a jealous account of them with his conscience. He sauntered along, now throwing a cunning and effectual fly, now resting, smoking, and chattering as the fancy took him. He found a great deal of the old stimulus and piquancy in Langham society, but there was an occasional irritability in his companion, especially towards himself personally, which puzzled him. After a while, indeed, he began to feel himself the unreasonably cheerful person which he evidently appeared to his companion. A mere ignorant enthusiast, banished for ever from the realm of pure knowledge by certain original and incorrigible defects. After a few hours' talk with Langham, 
Robert's quick insight always showed him some image of himself resembling this in his friend's mind. At last he turned restive. He had been describing to Langham his acquaintance with the dissenting minister of the place, a strong, coarse-grained fellow of sensuous, excitable temperament, famous for his noisy conversion meetings, and for a gymnastic dexterity in the quoting and combining of texts, unrivalled in Robert's experience. Some remark on the dissenter's logic, made perhaps a little too much in the tone of the churchman conscious of university advantages, seemed to irritate Langham. "'You think your Anglican logic in dealing with the Bible so superior. On the contrary, I am all for your ranter. He is your logical Protestant. Historically, you Anglican parsons are where you are and what you are, because Englishmen, as a whole, like attempting the contradictory, like above all to eat their cake and have it. The nation has made you and maintained you for its own purposes, but that is another matter.' Robert smoked on a moment in silence. Then he flushed and laid down his pipe. "'We are all fools in your eyes, I know. A la bonheur. I have been to the university, and talk what he is pleased to call philosophy. Therefore Mr. Colson denies me faith. You have always, in your heart of hearts, denied me knowledge. But I cling to both in spite of you.' There was a ray of defiance, of emotion, in his look. Langham met it in silence. "'I deny you nothing.' he said at last, slowly. On the contrary, I believe you to be the possessor of all that is best worth having in life and mind. His irritation had all died away. His tone was one of indescribable depression, and his great black eyes were fixed on Robert with a melancholy which startled his companion. By a subtle transition, Ellesmill felt himself touched with a pang of profound pity for the man who an instant before had seemed to pose as his scornful superior. He stretched out his hand and laid it on his friend's shoulder. Rose spent the afternoon in helping Catherine with various parochial occupations. In the course of them, Catherine asked many questions about Long Windale. Her thoughts clung to the hills, to the grey farmhouses, the rough men and women inside them. But Rose gave her small satisfaction. "'Poor old Jim Backhouse!' said Catherine, sighing. Agnes tells me he is quite bedridden now. "'Well, then, a good thing for John, don't you think?' said Rose briskly, covering a parish library book the while, in a way which made Catherine's fingers itch to take it from her. "'And for us? It's some use having a carrier now.' Catherine made no reply. She thought of the noodle fading out of life in the room where Mary Backhouse died. She actually saw the white hair, the blurred eyes, the palsied hands, the poor emaciated limbs stretched along the settle. Her heart rose, but she said nothing. "'And has Mrs. Thornburg been enjoying her summer?' "'Oh, I suppose so,' said Rose, her tone indicating a quite measureless indifference. She had another young Oxford man staying with her in June, a missionary, and it annoyed her very much that neither Agnes nor I would intervene to prevent his resuming his profession. She seemed to think it was a question of saving him from being eaten.' and apparently he would have proposed to either of us. Catherine could not help laughing. I suppose she still thinks she married Robert and me. Of course, so she did. Catherine coloured a little, but Rose's hard lightness of tone was unconquerable. Or if she didn't, Rose resumed, nobody could have the heart to rob her of the illusion. Oh, by the way, Sarah has been under warning since June. 
Mrs. Thornburg told her desperately that she must either throw over her young man, who was picked up drunk at the vicarage gate one night, or vacate the vicarage kitchen. Sarah cheerfully accepted her month's notice, and is still making the vicarage jams and walking out with the young man every Sunday. Mrs. Thornburg sees that it will require a convulsion of nature to get rid either of Sarah or the young man, and has succumbed. And the Tysons? And that poor Walker girl? Oh, dear me, Catherine, said Rose, a strange disproportionate flash of impatience breaking through. Everyone in Longwindale is always just where and what they were last year. I admit they are born and die, but they do nothing else of a decisive kind. Catherine's hands worked away for a while. Then she laid down her book and said, lifting her clear, large eyes on her sister, "'Was there never a time when you loved the Valley Rose?' "'Never!' cried Rose. Then she pushed away her work, and, leaning her elbows on the table, turned her brilliant face to Catherine. There was frank mutiny in it. "'By the way, Catherine, are you going to prevent Mamma from letting me go to Berlin for the winter?' "'And after Berlin, Rose?' said Catherine, presently, her gaze bent upon her work. "'After Berlin? What next?' said Rose, recklessly. "'Well, after Berlin I shall try to persuade Mamma and Agnes, I suppose, to come and back me up in London. We could still be some months of the year at Burwood.' Now she had said it out. But there was something else surely goading the girl than mere intolerance of the family tradition. The hesitancy, the moral doubt of her conversation with Langham, seemed to have vanished wholly in a kind of acrid self-assertion. Catherine felt a shock sweep through her. It was as though all the pieties of life, all the sacred assumptions and self-surrenders at the root of it, were shaken, outraged by the girl's tone. "'Do you ever remember,' she said, looking up while her voice trembled, "'what Papa wished when he was dying?' It was her last argument. To Rose she had very seldom used it in so many words. Probably it seemed to her too strong, too sacred, to be often handled. But Rose sprang up, and pacing the little workroom with her white wrists locked behind her, she met that argument with all the concentrated passion which her youth had for years been storing up against it. Catherine sat presently overwhelmed, bewildered. This language of a proud and tameless individuality this modern gospel of the divine right of self-development, her soul loathed it. And yet, since that night in Maddisdale, there had been a new yearning in her to understand. Suddenly, however, Rose stopped, lost her thread. Two figures were crossing the lawn, and their shadows were thrown far beyond them by the fast-disappearing sun. She threw herself down on her chair again with an abrupt, "'Do you see they have come back? We must go and dress.' and as she spoke she was conscious of a new sensation altogether, the sensation of the wild creature lassoed on the prairie, of the bird exchanging in an instant its glorious freedom of flight for the pitiless meshes of the net. It was stifling, her whole nature seemed to fight with it. Catherine rose and began to put away the books they had been covering. She had said almost nothing in answer to Rose's tirade. When she was ready she came and stood beside her sister a moment her lips trembling. At last she stooped and kissed the girl, the kiss of deep suppressed feeling, and went away. Rose made no response. Unmusical as she was, Catherine pined for her sister's music that evening. Robert was busy in his study, and the hours seemed interminable. 
After a little difficult talk, Langham subsided into a book and a corner. But the only words of which he was conscious for long were the words of an inner dialogue. "'I promised to play for her. Go and offer, then. Madness! Let me keep away from her. If she asks me, of course I will go. She is much too proud. Already she thinks me guilty of a rudeness.' Then, with a shrug, he would fall to his book again, abominably conscious, however, all the while, of the white figure between the lamp and the open window, and of the delicate head and cheek lit up against the trees in the soft August dark. When the time came to go to bed, he got their candles for the two ladies. Rose just touched his hand with cool fingers. "'Good night, Mr. Langham. You're going to smoke with Robert, I suppose?' Her bright eyes seemed to look him through. Their mocking hostility seemed to say to him as plainly as possible, "'Your purgatory is over. Go, smoke, and be happy.' "'I will go and help him wind up his sermon,' he said, with an attempt at a laugh, and moved away. Rose went upstairs, and it seemed to her that a Greek brow and a pair of wavering melancholy eyes went before her in the darkness, chased along the passages by the light she held. She gained her room, and stood by the window, seized again by that stifling sense of catastrophe, so strange, so undefined. Then she shook it off with an angry laugh, and went to work to see how far her stock of light dresses had suffered by her London dissipations. End of Book Two Chapter 15